have your Bibles this morning, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 40? Exodus chapter 40, we'll read the final verses of the book, beginning in verse 34. God's word says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, one day, one day we will see your glory. Our eyes will actually behold it. It will be visible and manifest. Lord, our faith will be turned into sight. But Lord, let us live today just as though it were as real as when we see it. Because Lord, we know that your glory has been poured into us and is being poured through us. And so Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to each one of us in a way that more reflects your glory and reflects your nature and reflects your character to all who come into contact with us. God, can I just praise your name today to be, for being with my church family? How good it was to ride to church with my family in one car. God, these are graces. These are gifts. Too often taken for granted. And even in these gifts, we see the reflections of your glory. So Lord, let us live today by faith until our faith is turned into sight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Would you want God's promises without his presence? I think this is one of the most probing questions that we can ask of our hearts. Is the reality, if you could have everything that you've prayed for, everything that you've asked for, everything that God himself has promised, and the only exclusion was God's presence, is that a deal that you would take? If you could have the house in the neighborhood that you want and live in, If you could have the job that's satisfying and enjoyable, if you could have the salary that allows you to be comfortable and secure, if you could find a sense of purpose, if you could have your dream marriage, if you could have the children that you want, the family that you want, if you could have the quality of life that you want, if you could have the health just as you would would enjoy it to go and to live into a, a ripe old age. But the only exclusion was the presence of God. Would you want it? Or, or what if, what if you could have a version of heaven, and everybody in your family that you want to be there is there, and everything that you were hoping it would be, it was, and everything that you were desiring it would be. You, you would live forever and have a mansion and walk on streets of gold and do as you want and go as you please and rest all the time, but the only absence from heaven was nothing that you dreamed, nothing that you wanted, but only the presence of God. Is that a deal that you would take? You see, I wonder how many of us have even contemplated the thought of God outside of the gifts that he gives. 
How many of us have ever sat down and considered not the discovery of what God can do for me, not the discovery of what God can give to me, but the discovery of who God is in his essence, the discovery of who God is in his glory. This is the exact proposal that God gives to the people of Israel through Moses in Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, they've just, they've just worshipped and bowed down to the golden calf. Moses has descended down from Sinai and he has shattered the two tablets, showing that the covenant has been destroyed, not because of God, but because of them. And he goes and he begins to intercede on behalf, praying to God. And God says this, go on to the promised land. Go on to Canaan. Go to the place where that flows with milk and honey and enjoy all of the prosperity there. Enjoy all of the, the what great quality of life that it has to offer. All that I've promised you. Plea deal of a lifetime, doesn't it? That sounds like the plea deal of a lifetime. That you can have every good thing, you can have all the things that I've promised you, you just can't have me. I'm afraid that me, in the wickedness of my own heart, I would have jerked his arm off. But Moses responds by saying, Lord, if your presence will not go with us, do not take us up from here. Lord, if your presence will not go with us, do not take us up from here. That is, Moses understood that Israel needed God's presence far more than they needed his promised land or his prosperity. That quality of life is secondary to intimacy with God. That our greatest need is not that we are prosperous. Not that we can retire at the right age. Not that we can have the standard of living or provide for our children. All the things that we never, that the priority of our life is not our quality of life. The priority of our life, the desire of our life, the need of our life intrinsically, inherently, is an intimacy with God. An intimacy with God. So what I want us to look this morning, as we close out uh, the Exodus part of the big stories, I want us to look for three discoveries about God. Three discoveries that Moses made that shifted his perspective and shifted his priorities and those of Israel. And three discoveries that can shift our perspective and our priorities in our love relationship with him. And the first one that you'll discover is that God is among us. God is among us. It says there in verse 34, and in two uh, phrases that really parallel one another, saying the same thing twice, in other words. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Every step of the way out of Egypt, God had led Israel and told them exactly where to go. He had guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of, of fire by night, so that they always knew exactly when to go and where to go and how to go. If the cloud and the fire didn't move, they didn't move. If the cloud or the fire did go, whenever it was, they picked up their tents and they followed after him. But these are words of grace, and I don't know that we get that very often. We, we don't, here in the humid, deep south, understand desert land a whole lot. Maybe some of you have been deployed or you've lived in places that were deserts. But what you would know is that in the desert, there's something missing. Clouds. Not a lot of clouds in the deserts. We, we take clouds for granted, don't we? But in the desert, a cloud is the difference between life and death. A, a cloud is the difference between, between burning up or having refuge. So a cloud is a rest. A, a cloud is a provision of, of kindness. A, a, a cloud is a place that you take refuge. It's a shelter. This is who God is to his people. This is who God is to his people. In the midst of a desert land. In the midst of a desert generation, he is a shelter. He is a place of rest, of respite. 
a place that we can hide ourselves so that we can live where we otherwise might die so that our souls can be brought to life and revived and renewed rather than parched and depleted and dehydrated. And so the question that's on the periphery here in Exodus chapter 40 is whether or not God is going to accept Israel as his people again. Whether or not he's going to accept the intercession that Moses has made on their behalf when he has went and he has repented on behalf of their people. Will God's presence come and still dwell among them even though they bow down to this golden cow and did exactly what they said they would not do? So you can imagine the shouts. You can imagine the celebration when the tabernacle has been completed. It's a tent, a tent in the midst of thousands of tents, right in the center. All of the Israelites gathered around it because it is the center of life. And there it is, right in their midst, among them. And the glory of the Lord falls upon it. When the cloud settles over the tent, it is God declaring, I accept my people. I forgive them. I receive their repentance. I love them. You see, that is what made Israel distinct. That is what made Israel distinct. The word tabernacle here literally means a dwelling place or a dwelling tent. And it was this dwelling place of God that made them distinct. It's what set them aside from every other civilization. That when he accepts his people, he comes and he begins to to dwell among them. And you understand that we get this wrong, okay? So so often, the way I hear it it, it explained, and and you may may have said this, I've said this too, okay? So I'm not not like looking down on you, okay? We adopted this language. But what we talk about is, I've accepted Jesus. Or that person has accepted Jesus or accepted God. But y'all, God is not in heaven hoping that we accept him. The scriptures say that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and there will not be any doubt in any of our minds as to whether he is God. God is not in need of our acceptance. We will, one way or the other, accept him as the Lord. God's acceptance is not dependent upon our profession of faith or upon our uh, our repentance. Our acceptance is. Our acceptance is. Whether or not we bow our hearts and surrender to his lordship doesn't mean he's lord or not lord. It just means we are accepted or we are rejected and condemned. So here is Israel. Come, come, having having bowed before them and, and offered up their repentance. And the Lord, he accepts them. And what they realize is the same thing that you and I can know today. Is that when God accepts you as his people, he marks you as distinct by living, living among you. That is, he's not like the other gods. Temperamental, grumpy, coming and going. You you make them angry and they get fed up with you and they leave you alone and they turn you over to all the chaos. No, he says, build my house in the middle of my people. Put my tent right in their midst. All of their issues, all of their baggage, all these golden calf bowing down fools put my tabernacle right in their midst and I, I am going to mark them as distinct, not because they are great, not because they are strong, not because they are wise, but because I live among them. So do you see this? The distinctive mark of the people of Israel The distinctive mark of all of God's people in the kingdom of God is that their God loves them. He loves them. 
He's resolute in his love for them. He's committed in his love for them. So you see, there's a, there's a beautiful picture of God's kingdom then, of God's kingdom now, and of God's kingdom one day that's being painted for us here. This week in our county, we, I guess just about every person that I've talked to has mentioned Lucy, little Lucy, who lost her life in a car accident. She was hit head on, her family was hit head on by Chocolaca Park by a man that had stolen a car and was coming around. And, and this beautiful three-year-old, little blonde-haired sweetheart passed into eternity. And you know, it's hard for me not to look at, think of her and look at Sarah Eliza and think there's no difference, right? You, you can feel the shrill of that mother in your bones having not heard it, can't you? You can feel the knot in your stomach. You know what that is? That is the groanings of this earth for Eden. That is the groanings of this earth for Eden. The, the longing for the restoration of an, of an unadulterated, unhindered intimacy with God. Where there is no separation between creator and creation. Where there is no fallenness, no curse, no brokenness, no, no sorrow. Where there's a respite. Where there's rest, where there's refuge, where there's shelter. Church, that's what the tabernacle was to represent for Israel. That there was a place, e- even within the tabernacle, I, w- I wanted to show you all this, the time won't allow it, but there's seven different day, there's seven different times it says, then God said and creates it, and there's seven days of creation. So, so there's this, this parallel picture being drawn between the tabernacle and the original Eden. It's even guarded by cherubim made above the mercy seat that's placed there in the Holy of Holies. And the concept is, the concept is, is that all of the world may be under the curse, but God is right there in the midst of his people, and he's going to renew the earth, because right there in the midst of his people is the essence of Eden, the presence of God, the holiness of God, the love of God manifest, right? So it's a resource, a reset of sorts, of Eden in dwelling right there in Israel's midst, but it's also, it's also a picture for us calling forward to Jesus, calling forward to Jesus. One of the verses that I quote to you most often, I have it listed up here uh, on the screen, is John 1.14, right? John 1, 14. Let's read this here. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. Okay, now here's why I think this is significant. All right, so most of you Bible scholars know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. But but we have, uh, we have Greek translations of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translations of the Old Testament, the word that is translated tabernacle is the same word that's translated as dwelt. So this is literally, and the word became flesh. Let me pay attention here. I misspelled this in the first service. And tabernacled among us. The, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have, now this is the cool part, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now think about this picture. Think about this picture. How many of you have seen the glory of God? How many of you have seen it? Oh, we long for it, don't we? We long for it. We ache for it. We yearn for it. We want to be brought back into Eden where the presence of God is permeated and thick and there. And God has promised that it has come. But here, here, it says when Jesus came, the glory became visible. It was glory. You could see what happened all the way back in Exodus. There was a cloud. A cloud of glory. A glory cloud. It was, clou- it was glory you could 
see. Now think about the picture here. Think about the picture. Glory you could see way back in Exodus when the glory cloud comes and descends upon the tent. Glory you could see in John chapter 1 verse 14 when he comes and he tabernacles among us. But guess what? One day, one day there is going to be glory and it's all you can see. There is no sun in the new creation. There is no sun in the new heaven and the new earth. And you know what else is missing from the new heaven and the new earth? There is no temple. There is no tabernacle. You don't get a new heaven, a new earth and a new temple. There is no temple because the whole earth, all of the creation is the temple of God. And there is no sun because the radiance of his glory illuminates all that he has made so that now there is an unbroken bond between his people and his presence, an ultimate intimacy with God. Oh, don't you long for it, church. Don't you long for it. Can't you see it? But there is a meantime application for us. Just because we are between the time in which Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us and the time in which Jesus will return and the whole earth will be filled with his glory doesn't mean that the glory of God is absent. Do you know where the glory of God dwells in today? In you and in me. The Bible says that we are temples of the living God. We are temples of the living God. In other words, the way that glory is made visible in the earth today is through us. It's through the way that we love our neighbor. It's through the kindness that we share with others. It's through the mercy. It's through our tone of speech. It's by, by our own lives and our own obedience and our own faith. That's why we obey. We don't obey to come into the kingdom of God. We don't obey that God will accept us. We obey that God will be revealed to the world, that the kingdom will come, and that it will come in its fullness, that all who see us and all who meet us and all who know us might behold glory they can see, glory made visible. God is among us and we should live like it. God is among us and we should love like it. God is among us and we should look like it. God is among us and we should rest like it. The next discovery that I want us to make this morning is that God is beyond us. That God is beyond us. See, in Exodus 33, Moses pleads with God to show him his glory. And God responds by saying, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And so this is the purpose of the tabernacle. You'll notice uh, there in verse 35 it says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. So here he is. He's went through all the painstaking processes of constructing the tabernacle. And for some of you who are contractors, you maybe have been there before. You've built something and it's beautiful. Russell, you might get relate. Like it's beautiful and you love it. You're like, man, this would be nice. And then you have to hand the keys over to somebody else. You don't even get to enjoy it, right? Like you did all the work, but you don't get to love it. You don't get to enjoy it. Here's Moses. Moses has went through this process and he's led the people and he's constructed this tabernacle, this, this masterpiece right here in the, in the middle of all of the other tent villages. They are on their way through the wilderness and then he has the hand over the keys and God says, well, you're not coming in, Moses. You're not coming in. You're excluded. That is that the tabernacle was not just meant to communicate that God was among his people. It was also meant to communicate that God was beyond his people. 
that God was beyond his people, that there was a separation between a holy God and a sinful people, a necessary separation, a separation that prevented the death of sinners, a separation that prevented the condemnation and the destruction of sinners, because you can't bring light into the presence of darkness without light extinguishing the darkness. And so if you bring a man in the presence of a holy God, that man is surely, surely to be extinguished. And so I put a, a graphic up there on the screen so that you could see some uh, image of what the temple, or the tabernacle, I'm sorry, might have looked like. There's a football field up there in the right-hand corner, so it gives you some idea just of the specs of this thing. But what you'll notice is that everything about the tabernacle is, to, is meant to communicate how, how distant man is from God, how far away from man, how a man, how a sinner doesn't just stroll into the presence of a holy God. You have the outer, you have the outer barrier that prevents people from just passing or cutting through like a shortcut or, or being able to, to look through as though it's, it's no big deal. Then you come through the gate and you have the outer courtyard, right? You have the courtyard and in the courtyard there's there a place where you can offer up uh, a free will offering, an offering that, that can cover up all the sins that maybe were unintentional or that you had forgotten or that you had not covered up. Because we confess our sins to the Lord and yet we still haven't confessed all of our sins to the Lord. You and I don't even know all of the ways that we've sinned against the Lord, do we? We're not even aware of them. And so they made provision for this. God made provision through this for, through his instructions to Moses. And so they would go and they would offer up uh, in, there in the court of the tabernacle sacrifices. Then you have the brazen labor, and that's where they would go. And they would ceremonially wash themselves and cleanse themselves because they knew before God they were filthy. Next to a man, they might look good. Next to a bad man, they might look really good. But before a holy God, none look good. Not even one. And so they would go and they would wash themselves ceremonially to represent that they were washing the filth from them. Washing off as they were to go in. And then you would have the holy place, which is this area right in here. The holy place. They would go behind the tent. Now, I want you to make an observation. You'll notice here that there are no windows in the temple, right? In fact, right there at the beginning, there's a very thick curtain that you have to put, peel back to be able to go into. And there are no windows anywhere to be found. There is no light that is coming in. And so there in the midst, there was a, a golden lampstand, a, a menorah that they would light. And the idea was, is it was that God is the light that brings you into his presence. That God illuminates the darkness, just like the pillar of fire by night. There would also be in there the bread of the presence the bread of the presence. Just as God has, had rained bread down from heaven and has fed his people, he had provided for his people. So he was always a God of provision. And he would provide the way into his presence. He would provide the way into salvation. He would provide the way in which man could take refuge with a holy God. And then, then you have this veil right here, don't you? This veil on number three. Where separating the holy place from the most holy place. The holy of holies. The place in which God's presence was pleased to dwell in all of its fullness. Manifested in all of its power. And in that place, only one man, only one day of a year, got to go and enter into that only one room, right? So there's this exclusivity. There's this There's this sense in which they are far above and and even when that high priest would come into that holy of holies the only way he was able to come is when the the mercy seat was covered by the blood of a lamb a lamb that had been slain because he even though the high priest he even though it's designated by god was still unworthy to be brought in and could only live because of god's mercy so i want you to think i want you to think 
about the shock and the terror and the panic that would have ensued. On that day when Jesus said, it is finished. And from the top to the bottom, as though the fingers of heaven had reached down and tore the veil, it is shredded. And that which had never seen the light of day, that which had never known the outside world, had been divided and split so that the sun came in. Because you see, there was a once for all lamb that had been slain. The mercy seat was still covered with blood, but this time it wouldn't have to be recovered the next year. This time it was covered with the blood of the sacrificial lamb in whom God was pleased to dwell. So you see, Moses' exclusion from the tabernacle, the fence that was built, the tent that was darkened, the veil that was hung, are all meant to leave the people of God longing for the day in which they can freely access the glory of God. And that is the longing that finds its fulfillment and finds its satisfaction only in the coming of Jesus. See, only in Jesus can the otherwise contradictory, of na- contradictory natures of both God and man coexist without God extinguishing the man. So only in Jesus, so only in Jesus can sinners access the presence of such a holy and glorious God. I want you to think about what he has said, that you have here in the most holy place the bread of his presence, the bread of his provision. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I will provide the salvation. You have the golden lampstand that illuminates the path to the Father and the Holy of Holies. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I will shine on the path. You have the veil that separates the presence of God from the reality of man, this utter barrier that seems impossible to penetrate, except, except, except Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You come to the Father through me, you walk into the Holy of the Holies through me, through my path, and there is not death waiting for you. There is life, and life everlasting, life that cannot be extinguished because on the mercy seat is my blood, the blood of the eternal Son, the blood that cannot be wiped away, the blood that washes all sinners and makes them clean forever, the sacrifice laid upon the altar that is this pleasing aroma to the Father. And he says, so, so, so the only way that we, that the nature of man and the nature of God can coexist without the nature of God extinguishing the nature of man is through Jesus. So what hope do we have? The hope is, is that we are in Jesus that I am the vine and you are the branches, that you abide in me. And since you abide in me, my nature abides in you. So come into the presence of the Father. Come into the presence of the Holy of Holies. Come into his presence and approach his throne with courage and boldness and defense and come and plead with him for his nature. You see, when Jesus tore the veil, When Jesus tore the veil, he opened up the priesthood to every single one of us. We are a kingdom of priests, church. We are a kingdom of priests. We don't go through a man to get to the Lord. We go to the Lord directly because we are in Christ. The mercy seat has been painted with his blood on my behalf and on your behalf. And so I wonder this morning, what are you doing with your invitation to the mercy seat? What are you doing with your invitation to the mercy seat?
Are you daily gathering yourself into the presence of God to watch your sins be put to death? Are you daily gathering yourself at the mercy seat to confess your sins to our Father that you might be set free again? Are you daily gathering yourself before our King to seek His bread to sustain you and His light to show your path? You've been given access. You've been given access. And so you don't have to go through somebody else. In fact, in fact, you can pray with the same boldness as the most righteous man who has ever lived. You can pray with the same access as the most righteous man who has ever lived. You can pray with the same effectiveness as the most righteous man who has ever lived. Because you abide in Christ. You abide in Christ. And so wherever you are, you can pray. However you are, you can pray. Whatever sins you have, you can pray. Whatever weaknesses you have, you can pray. Come, church. Come to the refuge that Christ has provided and enjoy your access to the King of Kings. The final discovery that we make this morning is that God is before us. That God is before us. It says in verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. See, there is an intended effect that the realization of God being close to us or among us, and at the same time God being well beyond us, is intended to have on us. That is, if we have his presence... It's to bring us comfort, right? If, if we have his presence, it's, it's to know that, that there is God and he's, he's always with us and he's always there and he's always, he's always willing and he, and he loves us and he cares for us and he ministers to us. Then, when we have his glory, when we have his, his transcendence, that is, th- th- this, this concept of God that he is far beyond us, that there is no ru- just reason I ought to be able to come into his presence. But there he is, the God who is beyond me, that, the God that, that is transcendent, the God that is mighty, the God that is great, the God that is able. He is living here in my midst with me. What is that supposed to do? It's supposed to give us Courage. Courage that we can go toward the promised land through the wilderness. We can go and we can face the potential of starvation. We can face insurmountable circumstances and incredible foes that stand against us. And we can face them with courage because we do not face them alone. Our God is both kind and mighty. He is both willing and able. He is both gentle and strong. And there he is with us. And so the promise is, is that if you'll go when I tell you to go, I'll go before you. I'll clear the path. I'll make the way. I'll make your ways, I will make your paths straight. It's not going to be sensible. It's not going to be logical. It's not going to be rational. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be convenient. But it's going to be glorious. But it's going to be glorious that he would crush the walls of Jericho. He would make the sun stand still. He would go before them as they face these impenetrable armies in Canaan. And he would go because he was going to be the deliverer of his people. He was going to be the hope of his people. And so he was the courage of his people. Is there any wonder what the primary message, why the primary message of Joshua is what it is? What's the primary message of Joshua? Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
You see, we live at the mercy of God. That's what this all means, right? When it says that they, they take up and they go when he says go, or they, they stay and remain, they're living at his mercy. They have to do what he says and go where he says to go and do it when he says. It doesn't mean they get to go when it, when it most makes sense to them or when it's most logical or when the weather's the nicest or when they've had a good night's sleep or when they're not sick or there's not a virus spreading through the camp. It means they go when God says go. They are at his mercy. They are, they are at the end of, of his rope. But the good news is, is, brothers and sisters, if we will go when he leads, where he leads, he will not send you where he does not accompany you. He will not send you where he does not accompany you. At the end of verse 38, you see what it says? In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys. The promise is, is that if you go when I say go, where I say go, how I say go, then you can rest assured that you can go with courage and you can go with boldness and you can go with assurance because I will not send you where I do not accompany you. Imagine as the glory cloud descended upon the tabernacle. There, I mean, it would have been unmistakable, all of Israel coming to the edges of their own tents and looking at one time, all of their gazes at heaven. Moses, there he stood, and here in the tabernacle, right in the center of the camp, the glory cloud descending upon it. Can you imagine how foolish, how foolish they must have felt that they had bowed down to a golden cow? You see, brothers and sisters, when faith turns to sight, all unbelief is humiliated. When faith turns to sight, all unbelief is humiliated. Right now, we live by faith. And we battle unbelief day in and day out. We battle it with everything that we've got, every resource that God has given. And we try to do it on our own too. But one day, one day, all of those times in which we backed down and God was calling us forward, all of those times in which we threw up our hands and waved the white flag and and gave up, all of those times are going to come into our minds and our unbelief is going to be utterly humiliated when we see the fullness of God's glory there in his presence. I wonder this morning, I wonder if you would ask yourself the same question that God's glory was asking the Israelites that day in the wilderness. Where is God's presence and God's glory calling you to courage? Where are you willing to go and what are you willing to face so long as you know that God is with you? That is the question that this passage is begging us to ask. Are you being called to adopt and the numbers don't just add up? Are you being called into the ministry, but all of the abilities don't appear to be there? Are you being called to to start teaching or to go on mission, but it doesn't make sense with your schedule? Don't you know, don't you know that if God is calling you, he will accompany you? Where is God calling you this morning? I don't, not why shouldn't you do it? Not why is it illogical? Not why is it irrational? Where is God calling you? Because the call of Exodus 40 is to follow Jesus. Wherever he leads, whatever he calls, whatever he says, whatever he demands, however strange it might seem, the call is to follow Jesus. Will you follow him with courage? Will you follow him with courage? Let's pray the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. 
You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 